Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 16, we're going to look at all 23 verses of the chapter tonight. Second Samuel 16 in verse 1, when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled bearing 200 loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Now when King David came to Behurim, There came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gerar. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruhai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. The king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruhai? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite of him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people were with him, arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What, what shall we do now? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go 
into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and also by uh, Absalom. Well, when we open up 2 Samuel chapter 16, we find that David is once again on the run. And this is a familiar place in David's life as he once lived on the run from his father-in-law, King Saul, and now he's on the run from his son, Absalom. We've been looking for the last several chapters at Absalom and Let me remind you that Absalom was indeed a narcissist, and he was deeply bitter toward his father. So in 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom spends four years posturing himself, politicking, positioning himself as the answer to what the kingdom needed. And verse 6 of chapter 15 tells us that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That is, he, he deceived them. He tricked them, and he rebelled against the throne of his father, David, who was God's anointed king. Regardless of his mistakes, he was still God's anointed king. God had not rejected him, but yet Absalom is rebelling against him. He's trying to usurp his father's throne. And frankly, the coup succeeded. The help of Ahithophel, Absalom declares himself to be the new king. He usurps David's throne, and David, as a result, considers it the wisest move to leave town as quickly as possible in order that he might protect the innocent people from losing their lives. So for the past 10 years, David has been, at the very best, spiritually stagnant. But now it appears, as we saw in chapter 15, that through this upheaval that Absalom has launched, David seems to be now awakened to a renewed sense of spiritual fervor. It seems that the old David in heart has returned, and he's back to fully depending on God once more. Well, on the way out of Jerusalem, uh, David runs into three friends, three loyal friends, and what a tremendous encouragement this was to David. And the darkest moments of his life as we often go through those very difficult uh, seasons where we may feel like everyone's against us. I mean, my own son here is out to get me. Uh, David runs into some loyal friends. We looked at them in chapter 15. There was Ittai, the Gittite, uh, who pledged loyalty to David and was willing to stay with him even if it meant death itself. Remember, David said, look, you don't have to do this. You can go back where it's safe in Jerusalem. He said, no, I'm going with you. You're God's man. You're the anointed king. And if that means my death, then so be it. I'm going with you. What an encouragement. Ittai, the Gittite, was to King David. And then we saw Zadok, the priest. David sent Zadok and the rest of the Levites back to Jerusalem because they had picked up the ark of God. And they were on their way out of Jerusalem with David and the rest of the people who were fleeing with the king. But It must have been reassuring to hear 
that these priests, although David was not for them bringing the ark of God out of Jerusalem, it had to be reassuring that they were standing with the king. These representatives as messengers of God, they were saying, we're on the king's side. We're friends of the king. We believe that God's hand is still on David's life. And so they stood loyally with him, although David said, no, 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 take the ark of God back to Jerusalem. If it's the Lord's will, God will bring me back to the ark in his time. We're not going to bring it with us because we know the history of that. Anytime we remove the ark of God out of its rightful place, bad things happen. And so there was Zadok the priest, there was Ittai the Gittite, and then there was Hushai the Archite. We read a little bit about him just a moment ago, but it was in chapter 15 we were introduced to him. David asked him to do an extraordinarily difficult thing, if you'll remember. He was an older gentleman, and David felt like it would be quite a burden for him to go on this strenuous journey. And so David says, Hushai, I'd like to ask you a favor. Would you be willing to go back to Jerusalem and be a spy for me in Absalom's court? I want you, Hushai, to be my eyes and ears and send it by word of the priest. And they'll come back and tell me everything that Absalom's doing and all that is, is going on. Hushai was given the assignment to go undercover. And I think there are Christians in law enforcement and even in the military for whom Hushai, no doubt, serves as a tremendous example to them as we see that even God honoring these things throughout Old Testament history. Well, well, now we run into three more individuals. That's where we ended in chapter 15. We looked at these three friends who were loyal to David. They were friends to David in this dark moment of his life. They were not piling on to his difficulties. No, they encouraged him, they stood loyally with him, they helped him, they even did extraordinary difficult things in order to protect and defend him. But now we run into three more individuals, and unfortunately, they're not loyal companions, as we saw the other three in chapter 15. These men are evildoers. They're not friends of the king. They're enemies of King David. Let's look at them. Number one, we see Ziba, the manipulator, all right? Ziba, the manipulator. That's in verses 1 through 4. Now, I'll admit to you right here at the very beginning that it's only when you read the rest of 2 Samuel that you can come to fully understand what's happening here in chapter 16 with this character named Ziba. Because what we're going to find out here in a couple of weeks in chapter 19, we are actually told the truth about what Ziba is telling David here in chapter 16. All right, let me explain. Ziba was once, many years ago, a servant in Saul's house. But since David took the throne, he has become Mephibosheth's servant. Who was Mephibosheth? Well, let's remind ourselves. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Uh, this is one of King Saul's sons who's no longer alive, but he was David's best friend. This is the same Mephibosheth who was disabled, and David promised to take care of him. He promised Jonathan that he would take care of Mephibosheth. And so David had given Mephibosheth farming land in Jerusalem, 
He had given him servants. And if you'll remember, he gave him an unlimited place at the king's table. That he could come and eat as much as he pleased, drink as much as he wanted. He could come and go. He's going to be like the very own son of David. Now again, Ziba was Mephibosheth's servant. He was more like the man who was in charge of farming the land. He was the, he was the chief farmer, all right? He was the agricultural consultant in Mephibosheth's house. And nonetheless, whatever all of his responsibilities were, he belonged to Mephibosheth. But it's not Mephibosheth who shows up here in chapter 16. Instead, it's Ziba. It's the servant. And he comes to David with donkeys and a lot of food and wine and other tasty snacks for the journey. And he gives it all, according to chapter 16, he gives it all to David. And as he does, he pledges loyalty to David. But David seems to be suspicious. And so he says in verses 2 and 3, he asks Ziba, why have, and the emphasis here is on you, why have you brought these? Why have you brought these? And verse 3, where's Mephibosheth? Now, we don't know it now, but when we get to chapter 19, we find out that what Ziba says here in response to David is an outright lie, all right? And David doesn't know that yet, but he does seem at the very least suspicious of this interaction. And the answer that Ziba gives David is that Mephibosheth has decided that he's going to stay in Jerusalem, which that part was true, by the way. He was in Jerusalem. Well, again, we'll find that out when we get to chapter 19. But Ziba told David that the reason why he was in Jerusalem was because Mephibosheth had defected and he had switched sides and he was now loyal to Absalom in hopes that the throne would be given back to his father, King Saul, or grandfather, King Saul. But again, when we get to chapter 19, we find out that's not true. Yet for the time being, David does choose to give all that was Mephibosheth's to Ziba. There was nothing that he could deal with right away. Again, they're on the run, and all that was Mephibosheth's is back there. But for the time being, he's like, I, I'm going to let you come, but I'm going to keep my eye on this situation. Something doesn't sound right here. So, so what is it that is exactly happening? Well, Ziba is making it appear that while Mephibosheth was disloyal, which he wasn't, he's making it appear that Mephibosheth is disloyal. He's also making it appear that he has been loyal to David and that he will continue to be loyal to David. You see, the only thing Ziba is doing is looking out for himself. And it appears here that deep down inside, David knows this. And perhaps even Ziba himself is smart enough to recognize that David is likely going to be the winner of this war against Absalom. He's seen a, a, enough of David victories, David's victories to know that, look, Absalom's not going to survive this. And 
when, when David does win, I want to make sure that I come out with him on the other side in a better position than I'm currently in. So he's looking out for himself. He, he's, he's put, if you will, uh, the leverage in the right place. He's siding with the right guy, but he's going about it all the wrong way because he wants to be in a better place than he's currently in. And so he lies to Mephibosheth. Well, we'll again see that in chapter 19, and then he proceeds to manipulate David. That's what he's doing here. He's manipulated, manipulating David. He saw a potential opportunity for promoting himself, and he did whatever he needed to do, even pain his master in the worst possible light, just to make himself look better. Do you ever... Do you ever run into any zebras? Not zebras. Zebras. You ever run into any? Let me ask you a better question. Do you ever see zebra in yourself? Whenever there, there's the slightest opportunity, perhaps, to advance yourself. Whenever there might be the slightest opportunity to advance your cause, you make sure you put yourself right there in the middle of it all, even at the expense of someone else. Zeba, the manipulator. He's an evildoer. All right, we see another person. Shammai, the aggressor. Shammai, the aggressor. This is verses 5 through 14. So David continues his journey. He's allowing Ziba to come with him for now. And he comes into this town. And to me, this is the funniest scene of the whole chapter. He comes to this town called Behurim. And there's a man there. We're given his name. His name is Shammai. And this man is letting David have it. The verse tells us that as he came, he cursed Continually, I picture this wild man as David is leading his entourage through the valley. The chapter says this man's running along the hillside, so he's looking down at David and his people, and he's just this wild, crazy man. He's yelling, and he's cursing, and he's spitting, and he's throwing stones, the Bible says, at David. He's, he's hurling with his right hand. He's hurling with his left hand. Uh, some of David's men had to surround him just to protect the king from being hit by a stone. And as he's cursing the king, he tells him, get out. Get out. What are you doing here? You're a man of blood. You're a worthless man. He's cursing him, throwing rocks. He's telling King David to get out of town. It's interesting here. He, he accuses David of being a man of blood, of bloodshed, a murderer. But if you do a little bit of investigating, you find out that this man, Shammai, is from the Benjaminite tribe, which is the same tribe in which Saul came from. So there's family connections to Saul and Abner. And he's not talking about Uriah here. He's not accusing David, cursing David, telling him to get out of town because he killed Uriah. No, he's referring to the rumors that were spread that David was the one who killed Saul. And Abner and Ebosheth. And none of those deaths did David have anything to do with. Now, the irony of this is David is a murderer, right? 
He is. But he didn't murder the people that Shammai is cursing him about. And the narrator of 1st and 2nd Samuel goes to great lengths to show us through proven fact that David was nowhere near those individuals when they were killed. And then he calls him a worthless man. Culturally speaking, this was the worst of insults. In fact, capital punishment would be given to anybody who would talk to a king this way. And that's where you have a friend like Abishai speaking up. Now, I personally, I love, I love this guy. Verse 9, so you have the crazy man running around the hillside, cursing, throwing stones. Get out, get out. Abishai's had enough. In verse 9, he says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take his head off. David's response was remarkable because Abishai had the right to do that, by the way, according to the law. What he was doing to the king, the man deserved death. But here's what David said in verse 10. Look at it. The king said, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David's saying, no, wait a minute. Listen, I'm, I'm not as innocent as you think I am. What he's accusing me of, I may not be guilty of, but there are some things I am guilty of. And it may very well be in the providence of God that God is allowing this man to accuse me and to, and to curse me and do evil things to me. You know, God does that. God will take evil and use it to send us a message. And it seems to be what's happening here, and David seems to recognize that. No, 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 it could be that God's in this. I know it's not good, I know it's not right, but it could be that God is in this. And that's what he says in verse 12. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay with good for his cursing today. He said, let's wait it out. If the Lord has sent him, then let's not do anything about it. But if this is not of the Lord, then the Lord's going to deal with him. And so it says here in verse 14 that David and his men went on the road while Shammai went along the hillside opposite of him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flinging dust. This is a picture of this man, maybe a Fred Flintstone looking man. He's barefoot, he's throwing rocks. He's slobbering, he's cussing, he's kicking the dirt until he can't see David anymore. That's the side of town you don't want to drive on at night, I think is what David is saying here. This man's crazy, but let it be. Let it be. It could be that that is of the Lord. Now, I think David, regardless of his circumstances, is starting to see what God has been trying to do in his life. Again, the message. David is saying here, it may be that this man has every right to curse me. It may be that God has sent him to remind me of my weaknesses. Even if he's doing it the wrong way. He's talking to me the wrong way. He's approached me the wrong way. He's gone about this the wrong way. But it could be that the Lord has allowed him to do this evil thing just to remind me to stay on guard. And what's remarkable to me about this is that in the heat of this turmoil that David is in, he has enough grace 
and he has enough humility to put this entire situation under the providence of God. And to me, that's remarkable. Because how many times do we want to take care of it? How many times do we want to take everything wrong done to us that's not of God, and I've got to deal with this, and so on and so forth? No, he's saying, look, this may be of God. And if it's not of God's will, God will use it for his purposes. He puts it all under the providence of God. Let's just let God work this out. It's a good reminder tonight that no matter where we may be, we must interpret this moment right now in our lives. We must interpret this season that you and I are walking through underneath the umbrella of God's sovereign providence. How you got here may not be the good way. But we have to look at it in the realm of God's sovereign providence. That it may very well be that God has allowed this wrong in your life. He has allowed this difficulty. He has allowed this thing to come upon you. Because he's trying to send you a strong message about yourself. And a strong message about his role in your life. Even when we find ourselves face to face with an aggressor. So we have Shammai, the aggressor. Let's look at thirdly, Ahithophel, the traitor. Ahithophel, the traitor. Now, David doesn't come into contact with Ahithophel here, but he's certainly the next scene in this cameo of evildoers. What we discover here in verse 15 is that Ahithophel is back in Jerusalem, and he's there with Absalom. And here's where we come back to David's spy, Hushai. He makes an appearance again. Remember, he's David's eyes and ears, and he gets to work immediately doing what David has asked him to do, even under extraordinary difficult circumstances. He, he approaches Absalom, and he says, long live the king. Long live the king. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure, because I think Hushai's words here through this whole dialogue with Absalom is chosen rightfully. He never says, long live King Absalom. He says, long live the king. I honestly believe the integrity of Hushai's heart here is he's thinking about David as he's saying this. He's keeping David in mind. But here's, here's Absalom's narcissism. He can't even figure that out. He just automatically assumes he's talking about me. Long live the king. Yep, I'm the new king. But remember, he's playing the role of a spy here. He's undercover. He's appealing to the emotions of Absalom. I can't imagine the stress of being in such a role. I'm sure David was thinking of him constantly as well as they were traveling. Boy, I hope Hushai's all right. I hope this plan works. I, I hope I didn't put him in a situation where he's going to be compromised. But Hushai is succeeding. And the scene quickly moves on to Ahithophel. And here's the question that's humorous to me. Absalom looks to Ahithophel and says, what do we do now? What do we do now? I mean, he's made it this far. He spent four years posturing, politicking, positioning himself. He's brought this whole entourage, declaring himself as king. They make it to Jerusalem. David is running out of town, and it's like, now that I'm here, I don't know what to do. So he looks at Ahithophel. What should we do now? Ahithophel doesn't hesitate. And he tells him, 
exactly what he should do. Now, we've already read his advice in the text, so we're not going to park on it. What he tells Absalom to do was a sign in this Middle Eastern culture that when you do such an act, it's a sign that says, I have conquered the king of that city and I've taken control of his palace. And Absalom did hear exactly what he was counseled to do. And he did it because Ahithophel's counsel was received as if it was the word of God itself. It was powerful counsel. And as a man who once served as David's chief counselor, what we find now is that Ahithophel is controlling the kingdom through Absalom. He's a traitor, and he's using his power to manipulate everything. But here's what I want you to think about. Because it wasn't too long ago, back in chapter 15, that David offered up a prayer when he found out that Ahithophel had defected and given his loyalty to Absalom. Do you remember the prayer? Well, if you have your Bibles open, look at it right there in verse 31 of chapter 15. David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That was it. That was his prayer. So now we fast forward and we see Ahithophel giving his counsel to Absalom about what he should do now that he's coming to the city of Jerusalem. And the point that I'm making is that Absalom receives bad advice. He receives foolish counsel from Ahithophel. And here's why. The prudent thing would have been to tell Absalom to take his army and pursue David and to pursue his men while they were in their most vulnerable position. Because at this point, David had nothing. He's just on the run. And at this point, he had not even crossed the Jordan River yet, which acted as a barrier during military conflicts. So if Absalom and his men would have immediately pursued David and his men in the way that Pharaoh pursued the children of Israel immediately upon leaving Egypt, then David and his men from a pure physical perspective would not have been able to withstand such an attack. It would have knocked him out. But by telling Absalom in that moment, To just make yourself at home, take over by going into David's concubines, it allowed David the necessary time that he needed, not only to get further down the road, but to cross the Jordan River. And when he crosses the Jordan River, you know what's going to happen? He's going to regroup, and he's going to prepare for Absalom's attack. The point is this, Ahithophel gave really bad counsel. I mean, we're talking about the same guy whose counsel up to this point had been received as if it's the word of God. He was esteemed as the chiefest of all counselors, and he's giving terrible advice to Absalom. Because David prayed just a few days ago. Please, O oh Lord, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It wasn't a very long prayer, was it? It wasn't a very deep prayer. But God answered it. 
And it's going to make all the difference in what is soon to come. Two things as we close tonight. Number one, never once had David been rejected by God. It's important that we note that. No matter what was happening to him or how much danger he gets himself in, he was still King David, the anointed of God. We need to remember that. Absalom can say whatever he wants to say. David is still God's chosen man. The second thing that I note here is that no matter how terrifying or chilling the attacks may be on God's kingdom, it's always better to be a friend of the king than it is an enemy of the king. But what do we do when these type of evil doers come against us? Where we live, where we work, even where we worship. What do we do when evil doers come toward us? Those manipulators, those aggressors, those traitors. You know, I was wondering this week, if David might have written Psalm 37 on account of 2 Samuel 16. And, and that's where I want us to close tonight. Turn over there with you. It's not on the screen. Just turn over there to Psalm 37. Because it would just appear to me, we know this is a Psalm of David. It just appears to me that perhaps David had the events of 2 Samuel 16 on his mind when he wrote this song. It's a long song, but I at least want you to see the first nine verses. Look at what he says here. Verse 1, 37, Psalm. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Fret not yourself. Now, that's, that's, that's not something that we say in our modern, everyday interactions. Fret not yourself tonight before you go to bed. What in the world does that mean? All right, here's what it means. Don't get worked up over this. Don't get worked up over this. Fret not. Don't get worked up over this. Now look right here. You're looking at the king of getting worked up. I get worked up. I get worked up over things I've done. I get worked up over things I have no control of. It doesn't take but a single sentence that somebody can throw at me and I get worked up. And yet here, David is faced with a situation in 2 Samuel 16 where it would be easy to get worked up. I mean, you got guy, one guy is manipulating him. You got another guy that's cursing him. Another guy who's flat out defected on him. He's a traitor. And he's saying to the rest of us, hey, it may be hard because those people get under your skin and they do evil things to you and they say evil things about you. But don't get worked up over it. Am I talking to anybody tonight? Hey, I don't have to be because I know I'm talking to me. Don't get worked up over it. Don't get worked up over it. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Look at this. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass. And they will wither like the green herb. Instead, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself. Don't get worked up over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Don't get worked up over that. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. Don't, don't get worked up. It tends only to more evil. Just know this, verse 9, that the evildoers will eventually be cut off. And those who wait for the land, they're going back to the land. It seems to fit, doesn't it? And the challenge here as we face these type of people in our lives really comes down to verse 5. Committing our way to the Lord. Committing our way to the Lord. Trusting in Him. He will act. He will act. So when David doesn't have it all figured out yet about Ziba and what's going on with Mephibosheth, I mean, he's not, he's not going to get worked up over it. He's going to commit it to the Lord. He's going to trust God. He's going to keep going the way God's leading him. And he's going to know eventually, eventually, God will act. God will act. And when the crazy man on the hillside is throwing stones and cursing and spitting and flinging dust, he's, he's not going to get worked up over it, although it would be very easy to get worked up over it. He's not going to get worked up over it. No, he's going to keep going the way he's supposed to go. He's going to trust the Lord, and he's going to believe that God eventually is going to act. And then with all that stuff Ahithophel's doing and has done and will do, I'm not going to get worked over I'm just going to keep doing what I know God wants me to do. I'm going to trust the Lord. And in God's timing, he will act. And he's going to bring me back to the land. That's that's the application tonight. Fret not at evildoers. It's the same attacks that came against Christ as he lived and walked on this earth, as he made his way up the road of Golgotha to Calvary, as they threw stones at him, as they spit at him, as they cursed him, they were aggressive toward him. There was Judas who traded. There was a traitor against him. Same thing. But yet what did David do? Or what did Jesus do? He didn't get worked up over evildoers. He committed his purpose to the Lord, and he knew three days later, God was going to act. May the message ring true for us as well. Let's stand together tonight as we pray. Father.